like to say a few words tonight about intimacy of practice, which will largely be concerned with the exercise that we've been doing a number of times each day of bare attention. I'd like to try and experiment to see if we can, in a way, develop just what we're talking about as we do it. So I wonder if people who are way in the back could come up close so that uh, after a few preliminary words, like for us to engage in a dialogue about what your experiences have been doing their attention for a number of days now. So I'd like to make a few suggestions about listening. during the early part of, the, let's say, the next 20 minutes or so, a half hour. I don't really know. Mainly, I'll be doing the talking, perhaps entirely, and you'll be listening. And then we'll all be doing it, taking turns talking and listening. So I'd just like to say a few words about listening in the spirit of bare attention so that we can do it right now. To me, the starting point would be what you've brought into the hall. As I know that when we come to the talks in the evenings, sometimes it's sort of a break period. Break in the sense of you don't really have to do anything. You've been working hard all day, you know, sitting and walking, bare attention, mindfully eating your food, and now it's time for Vimalo and myself to work hard. And you can just kind of relax and you know, listen, but the quality of energy is casual, friendly, warm, but casual. And it's hot, and that would only encourage us in that direction. So what I'd like to ask is for you to make an extra effort, even though perhaps that's what you brought into the hall. Maybe just for a moment, check and see where you are. Because that colors whatever else happens. Because what I'm going to ask is that you bring the same quality of attention to what we do here in the next hour or so that you might bring to the breath or walking meditation so that it becomes meditation in action rather than you being passive in a casual way. So step number one would be how to listen. What I'd like to suggest is that you begin to work with a a model of listening that is somewhat like this. Words will be coming towards you. You hear them. And then there's a reaction. You have some reaction to the words. And we listen in different ways. There's at any given moment, the quality of the listening changes and also it's quite different from person to person. If you're mainly in your intellect, you're hearing through your mind, there'll be a lot of agreement, disagreement, defense, aggression, logic. And that's very good if the subject were mathematics or physics, where you'd stay at that level. But here, the words are pointing to certain things, pointing to you, to me. Or sometimes we're mainly at a feeling level. And it's a sympathetic participation with the speaker. Perhaps you like what's being said and we all meet in a nice feeling. There's agreement on an emotional level. And so there's thinking or there's feeling and that's having a direct encounter with whatever is being said. And then there's another level of listening which I would like to suggest we begin to use, and it's not that you've never used it, no doubt you have, I'm just uh, making it explicit, which you might call total listening. 
total listening would include the thoughts and feelings because they're going to be there. Unless your mind is empty, which would be good, then you would be receptive and the words would have a certain impact. In total listening, as best as I can put this into words, in order to really listen to me, you have to listen to you at the same time. You have, so that you're listening with your whole body and mind. It's somewhat like the tides going in and out. That is, something is said and you bring those words in with you and become aware of the reaction that you have to those particular words. Like, that's true, meaning that it, perhaps it agrees with your conditioning, that we have the same, we've read the same books, or we, have, we share the same values, or the opposite. And then, then there's a wave of attention that goes out again to hear the, hear the next words that come. So you're in and you're out. Now at first it may seem like two separate things are going on. You're aware of your reactions and your body and also what is being said, in particular your reactions to what is being said. Drifting off, planning something else. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, let's say if you're listening to music in terms of bare attention or intimacy, which I'd like to develop tonight, starting with uh, uh, the way we've been using their attention and going to uh, a little deeper. You can listen to music as pure sound. And so if music were playing right now, bare attention would be hearing the music as pure sound. But while you're hearing the music as pure sound, the biocomputer of our mind starts to have associations. If you know a lot about music, Perhaps you'll be reminded of concerts that you heard or different performances. This is not quite as good as the performance you heard two years ago. There's a whole bunch of, a whole world of meanings that will commingle with the pure sound. And the job of bare attention is to, is to stay anchored in pure sound. And then when the mind starts to spin out stories about what that sound means, and it's still bare attention, but now it's bare attention to thought, thinking as thinking, sound as sound. And it's quite an interesting exercise to do that sometime. Uh, I've learned that sometimes it's more difficult for people who are really sophisticated about music, who know a lot, because they have so much more knowledge that comes in with every, every piece that they hear. And so it's somewhat like that. What I'm suggesting is that in a way, what's more important than the contact, the content of what I'm saying tonight, definitely more important than the content, would be your beginning to use this process of listening to deepen the meditation practice, seeing how your mind moves with what it hears, what it does with it. And that requires energy and attention. Now, some of you are lying down or in rather casual positions, that's fine if you feel that you can remain alert in that posture. If not, I would suggest that you perhaps sit in a chair or get as comfortable as you can. It's, I'm not insisting you sit erect, but what I would like to request is that we all meet each other at the same level of intensity. And so we're attempting to practice their attention with this right now. And so I'll just talk for a little while and then we'll open it up for discussion. It seems to me that central to what we're doing in insight meditation is becoming intimate with life. And we start, again it seems to me, in a rather intelligent way by beginning with all the small details which make up our life. And bare attention seems to be no more than that. What does something really sound like? What does something really feel like, taste like, look like? And so we're learning to make direct contact with life, unmediated. But do we? If you've been doing the bare attention exercises, perhaps you've discovered 
how difficult it is to stay in a state of observation. And once you attain a kind of real innocence and clarity, how vulnerable it is. No sooner are you there than it's gone. One thing I would suggest in the next few days is related to the bare attention exercise, take a walk sometimes and just very innocently, instead of attempting to be totally attentive without any concepts, just take a walk and notice how looking looking happens for you naturally. Just what happens when we look and also listening. What seems to happen is that there's a gap or a an interval between, let's say, the, an object and our perception of it. Perception now being used for all the senses. And that gap or that interval can be just a split second and something fills up that interval and it's the past. It's all that we've accumulated. And it gets between us and what it is that we think, underline think, exclamation point, we're seeing. And so, the richer your experience, the more elaborate categories you have, the more subtle, the more sophisticated you may be, perhaps the further away we are from that what we're, that we're seeing or hearing. And so we have this huge momentum of the past, wherever we go, We've learned so much about what everything is. We have a name for almost everything. And so as we take a simple walk, that interval between the occurrence of an event, an object, and the direct contact with it, and what I'd like to suggest is that real seeing can't happen unless there's close contact. But that close contact is prevented by the intervention of knowledge and experience. And so what we're looking at or listening to is more our mind, which is interposed between us and that which we think we're in contact with. And attention, full, direct attention, can break the momentum of the past. It's not a violent act, but what happens is when you really pay attention, if there's total attention, the interest in what it is that you're seeing breaks the momentum of the past, and at least for a few moments, you're in contact directly with that which you're interested in. What is required for the bare attention to develop I think is a, a sensitivity to the fact that we're not, that we are, we're seeing from a center. We've created an entity which you can call the meditator or the observer. If you're taking a walk, the walker, or is the person. And so this person is seeing, but it's seeing through personhood. The observer is, is the past. It's a self-conscious entity put together by thought and often has a name, Larry, whatever your name is. And then we move out, let's say take a walk, taking a walk on the road, and the observer is coming in contact with things, but there's a center. And that center is put together by thought and is interposed between what is being seen and the seeing. If you can bring awareness to the center, it yields and then you're in total awareness, you're in total seeing or listening. If you're not aware that there's this filter of self-consciousness formed out of the materials of the past, each one of us has our own biography, and you may be an alert, intelligent person, and you're seeing something, but you're going to be seeing it from a certain angle, from a certain point of view. And it may be a point of view that you haven't examined or that you take for granted or that you favor. What's wrong with my point of view? It's a good point of view. Fine. But it isn't bare attention. And it isn't intimate. 
I'd like to suggest that intimacy of practice is what we're doing. We keep being, we keep drifting away from this direct contact with ourselves and with reality. And the practice is, in many ways, helping us to come back. Finally, the the real intimacy is intimacy with ourselves. Okay, let me give you a few examples which perhaps can make this more concrete. And at this moment, I'd like to request you check in on yourself and see if the listening that you're doing now is in the spirit of bare attention. It's not important whether you agree with what I say or whether you find it interesting or uninteresting, but it can be very helpful if you're noticing the reactions that you're having to what's happening, and that can bring you to a certain intensity. Now, this is a special situation. Many of us have been sitting for a while, and also we've agreed to try and do this. But as this becomes more natural and more relaxed, it can be brought into daily communication, daily interaction, and it makes the whole quality of communication, it it upgrades it, it makes it much more truly communication. Okay, let me give you an example of a whole problem that we face, which you might call obstinate familiarity. That is, things become so familiar, they're so obstinately familiar, that we don't even know that it's there. Sort of like a fish being in water. Give you a, an example that was very helpful for me. Really homely, and that's why it was so helpful. I was walking up a street in Cambridge a few years ago, a street that I'd walked up and down thousands of times, maybe more. A very close friend of mine lived on it for eight years, and then I, at the time, was living on it for six years. Ellery Street in Cambridge. I'd walked up and down so many times in every direction. I knew all the fences, I knew the garbage cans, all the dogs, all the cats, and a few shops would change, etc. Basically, that was my home range, so I was going up and down it. And one day I was walking up Ellery Street, and I just thought, oh no, not Ellery Street again. It was just so boring. You know, it was just so lifeless. Same old dog running out, bow wow, bow wow. Same car parked in the same place. You know, just on and on. At which point, maybe because I'd heard it so many times, I stopped and became aware of the boredom, of just how familiar it was, how lacking in freshness. And suddenly, Ellery Street was a new street. Same Ellery Street. So I had a lot of Ellery Street footage, you know, in my camera. And all I had to do was just push a button and empty of it. And then it was fresh again. It wasn't uninteresting. It was just like any place else that you would be. And it's not that there was anything special about Ellery Street. It's that there's something special about being alive. So it could have been anywhere or doing anything. It's that we fall into these routine sets. And it's deadening. It isn't direct, it isn't intimate, because what is between us and now is yesterday, or our anticipation of tomorrow. At that moment, I would say I was in intimate contact with Ellery Street. And of course, you go in and out. See if I can give you a few more examples. At this point in our life in this society, we're bombarded with the the films, TV, the media, with images of people and what they look like, which is not what they look like, but it looks like what they look like. And so much of it is, is in our mind that we now compare real people from a frame of reference of these imaginary creatures that have been created 
through all the tricks of the magazine industry, the film industry, etc. Let me back off a little and start more humbly than Hollywood. A long time ago, when I was a teenager, this subject has interested me for a long time, I realize that I'm speaking about it. During World War II, my uncle Harry was in the army, and I had not really seen him since I was very young, but there was his photograph on my Aunt Esther's piano. And every time I went in, which was across the street, there'd be this photograph of Uncle Harry in his uniform, beautiful white teeth, suntanned, army cap at a rakish angle. He looked like at least a general. He had to be a general. Extremely handsome, energy pouring out of his face. He seemed so happy in his military uniform. And every day I would look at, I hardly knew him because I was too young before he left for the war. And then one day the war ended and in walked real Uncle Harry. I mean, and he's a nice guy, but he wasn't that photograph. He was about like me, only a little older. And it was disappointing. He wasn't a general. He didn't look like a general. He just was a guy. You know, had certain, uh, I don't know, lines on his face and his teeth weren't really all that white. You know, he was a professional, one of those professional studio photographers, graduation picture type that you put in your wallet. And so, for, for quite a while, uh, I had a hard time with Harry. and it, was, it wasn't his fault. <laughs> he was just being Harry, but I was carrying around that photograph of Harry, and he was just a bitter disappointment. The same thing goes on through the movie industry in that we've been given all these images. And let's look at that for a moment. Bear attention, let's say with looking. Try an experiment sometime. Look in the mirror and see if you can see yourself as you are. I think you'll find it very difficult. What comes in as a comparative frame of reference. Oh, if only my nose were a little longer or if my nose were a little shorter or the hairs, too many gray hairs. And there's some comparison. If you push it more deeply, you'll see you're comparing yourself to real people in your life or idealized images, again, from the mass media as to what a person should look like to be handsome or beautiful. And it's very hard to just see yourself as you are without the mind going into some kind of evaluation or comparison that ha- comes from a norm, a social norm that we've picked up somewhere. That is not intimacy. That is not bear attention. There's an overlay of concept, of conditioning, which we take as all too real and then we're off and running trying to patch it up and fix it up and do whatever we can to it to make it look like what we think we should look like, which is what are on those magazines. So the whole idea of bare attention is to be able to see things exactly as they are from the most humble to profound things, things that are very complex, very important in our lives. Another example. Now we're moving closer to the depth that practice can go. I was reading a psychiatric case history of a psychiatrist, Ronald Lang, some of you have heard of, a British psychiatrist. And he was talking about the case of a man who'd gone into therapy because in his sexual relations he had a problem. That is, he could not get aroused sexually unless he could imagine a woman other than the woman he was making love with in his mind. And this was so powerful that it brought him to a psychiatrist for full-time attention. So that no matter who he was with, there was another image inside of his mind which was arousing him. And Lang talks about it as using another human being to masturbate yourself and seeing that as a kind of a syndrome. It was not direct contact. Or as the, this man was needed to impose between himself and another human being an image 
for some purpose. You know, we can all speculate on that purpose. But it was not direct contact. It was not intimate from that point of view. If you take the standards of insight meditation, if this same person, let's say, would be making love with a different woman, or with a woman, and if he would have an image of the same woman, now this is not a different woman, it's the woman that he's with, once again, it would not be intimate, it would not be direct contact. It might have been an image of the woman a few days before, a few minutes before, but there'd be something between him and the experience. And so you can see that their attention, as Vimalo pointed out last night, is not just looking at leaves, trees. It comes very much into our life. Okay, let's go one step deeper. Intimacy with ourselves. How's the communication going now? I mean, in terms of you. I have lots of questions. Not just yet. Okay, so that's what you're learning. Good. The next step is our relationship with ourselves. One aspect of that has to do with self-description. You might say that we human beings seem addicted to it, addicted to self-description, endlessly describing what we think we are, what we think, what we think we used to be, what we think we might be. If we do this, we'll be that. We used to be this, but now we're that, and soon we'll be something else. It's accompanied by images, visual images, or conclusions, verbal conclusions, and it's all over the place. You can hardly do anything without slipping in some way. Someone reported this a few days ago before the retreat. Just seeing a beautiful car drive down the street, the nice lines, the color, the power of it, a very well-made, attractive car. And immediately, there was a direct perception. The first contact was direct. And it was seeing the colors and the shapes and the form. And then immediately, thought jumped in and then there was the image of this person driving the car and what people, how they would see this person behind the wheel of this car, etc. Okay, the addiction to self-description means that we seem to be endlessly projecting some conclusion about who we are. I'm of this kind of a person. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm a good person. I'm not such a good person. I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm kind. It's endless. And as you look at them, you'll see that they're just concepts. And they fall away. They're, in a sense, not really real. Well, they have a certain level of reality. Verbal and visual conclusions about ourselves. We seem to need to fix ourselves in some frame. Give ourselves a social characteristic which has some stability. And then we have to protect it, polish it, defend it, change it, worry about what other people think of it, be concerned about what we think of it, it's quite exhausting. And so then the natural question comes up, is it possible to live any other way? Is it possible to live without these self-descriptions, addicted to these conclusions about ourselves? Would that person be insane? Would it be like having a prefrontal lobotomy? Would we be totally lost and aimless? Would it be meaningless, boring? But it turns out, in practice, as you follow these images and as they fall away, at least it's been my experience, and I hope some of you have had this experience, that it's, that's not the truth at all. You feel more alive and more free. The more you just are, rather than are something or another even though that something or another can give you energy.
rather than our something or another. Even though that something or another can give you energy, you create, you project something out that's wonderful. I'm a wonderful yogi, a very dedicated Vipassana yogi, and all that that might mean to you, carrying on the tradition of Buddhism for centuries. Then you identify with that image which you've made in your mind. It gives you energy and a feeling of being worthwhile, unbeatable. But does it last? What other problems come along with it? It has to go. It's not that you have to stop practicing the practice. But these images turn out to be much more trouble than they're worth. Invariably, inevitably, they bring suffering. They limit us. And so the practice becomes a letting go of all these notions and the need to have notions. And I would say that this intimacy with ourselves is in the direction of what is often called Buddha nature or original nature, true nature. It's non-dual. In terms of our relationships with others, this ability to be direct, which comes about from the bare attention, being able to hear sounds as sounds, smells as smells, sights as sights, etc. It has tremendous implications for our life together. For example, if I have some notions about myself, some self-descriptions that are precious to me, I'm very concerned about them and I'm concerned about what you think of them. And then, of course, you may be doing the same thing. And we limit each other. Supposing I could give you the freedom to completely be who you are instead of your feeling that you have to be a certain way in order to please me. then that would be wonderful for you because you could be who you are. And then if you could do that to me, not insist that I be like Uncle Harry, but let me be who I am and I'll let you be who you are. And then these images come up and we see them as images. It's not that they have no value. Sometimes there's even intelligence in them. There's a guide sort of like what you're doing with your life. And you learn from it and drop it. And you drop it not by pushing it away, but seeing it as an image, nothing more, some conclusion about yourself. And it seems possible to, to live in the world, to work with vitality, doing all the ordinary things that everyone else does who are loaded down with images. It doesn't mean that we, if this practice makes us more of a misfit than when we started out, then I wonder, what are we doing? It should make our life in the world easier. Our passage in every situation should be more flowing, easier. We ought to be able to see through all the ways in which we block ourselves. And my own feeling is the easing up of this burden of these conclusions through direct perception, seeing them fall away, and concretely feeling what it's like to be living in a a space that's not polluted, by these requirements that we impose on ourselves. It's not an ideology, it's a direct experience. It's a better way to live. It makes it a lot easier for us to allow others to do the same. Okay, maybe that's enough. What I'm interested in is some of us for a number of days now have been doing this bare attention period. We do it a few times a day where We haven't held you to any particular form. We just say, you know, go outside or stay inside. And hear the sounds of the birds. Or if you want to turn off most senses, close your eyes and just hear sound or just look or just feel the grass on the bottoms of your feet. Or whatever it is that you want to do. So that one value of it not being restricted to, in terms of form, it's pretty open is that it's a bridge 
from some of the more formal practices that we do here to the way life is, where you find yourself in many different postures and many different situations. And yet, this direct perception can be everywhere. It's not limited to special rooms or special to, to Asia or wherever else you might think. Okay, what I'd like to do now is see if we can't maintain the same quality of attention with each other. And I'd like to hear how it's been going for you in doing these bare attention exercises or however it's been used in eating, whatever. Possibly slowing the dialogue down a bit. Just as we slow the walking down and we slow the eating down. Just temporarily. I mean, I'm comfortable speaking very rapidly. That's natural for me. I'm going to try and slow down too. I'm not going to answer immediately. What I'm suggesting is that we do that is that we bring a bit more sensitivity into our exchange with each other here. We have an ideal opportunity to do it. It's a protected environment where we all share the same values, or roughly so. So that maybe we can use this. The dialogue is not simply an exchange of information and opinions, but begin to, to learn how to make this a normal part of our life so that meditation is brought into action wherever we are. We happen to be here. It's not superior to any other place. It's just as this is where we are. Anyone who's been doing the bare attention exercises have any comments or questions? Please. Sure. I've been doing it, but I never know that this is it now or not. You tell me. I don't know how bare it is. <laughs> it's more rare than bare. More what? More rare than bare. Maybe it's medium rare. But when yeah. I have it, I still don't know whether it's bare or not, because it's never quite bare. But I don't know. Well, but you knew enough to say what you just said. Well, <coughs> So maybe that's what's happening. It isn't quite bare. What does that mean? Well, that's what I'm asking you. It's your mind. I don't know what. It's not so different from what I have oftentimes experienced before. And it, what it seems to me to be is the stuff out of which poems are made. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I think there are depths of it. And we have a lot of conditioning, and no doubt that's with us a good deal of the time. Do you feel that is in your... Well, in so I cannot take that away, the fact that I know it's a fern. But when I see its shadow on my foot making a pattern there with my toes, and I love that, I still know what it is, but that's very nice because it was nothing I had seen before. Okay, there's a fern, and you're looking at it, and it's not a fern, but we've made it into a fern. It's just a word. And fern probably has a lot of associations. Supposing you were a botanist, then you'd be in real trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. okay. In other words, when I now see this fern, and especially the shadow which interests me, mm-hmm. and I put my foot under it there, and mm-hmm. it looks like the most beautiful ornation on my foot, I can't believe how nice this fern shadow is. On the fern itself, it's too. Then I see all those things, and I enjoy them, and I don't stop thinking, you know? I tell myself all everything I see while I'm seeing it, okay. and I think this is not really there. That's right. Okay, so wh- okay, let's let's work through this. From okay, we we come upon almost like frames of a movie. We come upon something in nature, and oh, there's a fern, and everything that you've said comes out about it. If you really, if there's real attention to the fern. That breaks the momentum of the past. Now, some of it is simply hearing your mind producing all this verbalization. In other words, we're not, tr- we can't, uh, we're not trying to forcefully subdue a lifetime of experience. But what we can do is we, s- we bring a steadiness to the fern and we hear the mind producing all this stuff about it. Now, in the hearing of the stuff that's produced about it, it starts to fall away. And if we can stay with the fern, at some point it will become just what it is. Even for a few seconds. And then maybe thought 
reintroduces itself and it keeps going like that. Where it's just, you've seen it for the first time. It's Ellery Street for the first time. And then thought reestablishes itself again and there's old Ellery Street again. What a drag. So it requires bear attention in two senses. One to the physical form, which we call fern, and then bear attention to thought as thought. But first, this is a plant all yes, by itself. Yes, that's right. There's many leaves, and then I found out that some of the leaves are not sh- not leaves, but shadows of other leaves, and they're darker, and that's terribly interesting. And that's then, you're too intelligent. Well, that's too bad. But uh, <laughs> there it goes. So I see all these things, and I wonder about them, and I like them in the sun, and and at, uh, at the same time I have the sun on the skin and everywhere. And the words you see are not primary; the words are secondary. But they're still there, and actually, I do confess, I do, at the end, also enjoy it more if I can give words to what I just felt. Hey, it's not a sin. Don't worry. No, it's not. <laughs> bear attention. Bear attention to the words would be. That's okay. Or we're not trying to to choke that off. Yeah, but also we couldn't. Well, well, are you saying that it's not possible to have a direct perception of the fern? No, no, I'm not saying that. I say I couldn't at this point. Yes, okay. But you're doing the exercise. I think it's like as direct as it can be right now. Fine, exactly. I don't know how direct it can ever be. Well, time will tell. Or just keep doing it. But see, there are two. You've done the exercise correctly in that you're noticing the fern. And then, then if you understand the thinking as thinking, then you're the bear attention, you're intimate with the fern and you're intimate with language, with the production of language. But let's go to another realm for a moment. The body. In a way, there are two bodies. There's the body body and there's the mind body. And the body body is this, and the sensations. But then we have all these images, thoughts, and you're, you have a lot of expert knowledge about a body. So then there would be an, a whole other body which is really the mind. Images about the body, knowledge of the body. And so if, if we were trying to, let's say, directly perceive the body, we would have to become sensitive to the mind body and be able to distinguish the two. So it's something like that. It's, don't make it laborious you know, or dreary or it's lighter. It's, um, I think you have the right spirit. And if you enjoy the, okay, now you might want to inquire as to why it's necessary to have language as the final cap off. Well, I'm doing that. The only thing I wanted still to add is that I sometimes, in order to try to be true to your spirit, the spirit that you recommend, uh, that I look at other things which are not verbal to begin with, like the way the roots cross over on that mountain, mountain on that forest path out there. They make the most wonderful patterns, the roots on the path. Roots of a, a tree? Three roots, yeah. yes. This is just patterns. And also when I walk the road down to the lake, the way the cement on the road is cracked. Mm-hmm. So these things are things I'm training myself on. They're easier, aren't they? What? They're easier. Yeah. Why? Well, it's very clear. Why? I, and I just want to... I just want But you don't have as much knowledge and verbal sophistication about that stuff. Is that I'm just trying to find out? No. What I think this would really lead, you know, I think the most becomes something again with this learned, but still, these Asher pictures, pictures which are totally confusing because they have two or three meanings depending on how you look at them, they're very vexing. <laughs> You know those pictures. Yes. Escher yeah. is the yeah. master of everything in that regard from from the Netherlands. And so you look again. My God, it's different. Suddenly, I'm laughing. First, it was a staircase. Now, suddenly, it's something else. So that I think is the most perfect example of direct perception because it has to be direct. They cannot be perceived any other way other than direct. Yes. And that's the trick. 
Okay, I guess some of what was implied earlier is that the degree to which we live in a almost an ocean of symbols now, you know, between the proliferation of knowledge and cinema and TV, etc., we're not living in it. We're living in an abstract world, cut off from direct contact with ferns and roots and whatever else, people. And the practice is so very simple that it's an attempt to become direct again, live in a real world which has breath and which walks, tastes food, feels its own suffering, feels its own joy, instead of the enormous sophistication, conceptual sophistication, which has atrophied our ability to experience life directly. We're not in our bodies, we're not in touch with our bodies so much. We, we know everything about the body except the body. Yeah. Um, there was some restlessness. It's not that, you know, I'm not, it's not uh, public school again, you know, you're being chided for being restless. It's just that when you're restless, are you attuned to it? Are you noticing it? What I'm suggesting is we maintain the same intensity. We keep remaining alert to what's going on now. You may be interested in hearing certain things and bored with other things and why doesn't he shut up or whatever it is. That isn't as important as you're staying alert and moving with it. Staying in direct contact with it. What? Okay, and so then what happens to you when you can't see? Okay, so you're getting restless that your visual stuff is not so clear. <laughs> Look at that. You're a great bodhisattva. Is he one of those arms that you know? <laughs> No, I don't care. I'm restless too. It's not an accusation. I'm just you know we Okay. You think it was an accusation. Uh there were a number of hands, I don't whoever whoever wanted. I think you uh, were you about no? Sorry. Sure. Say two things. It sounds like you're saying that direct perception involves seeing something, maybe hearing the words, and somehow divorcing feeling from the thought. No, if feeling is there, then that's part of it too. Okay, that's in another category. Then. I mean, another thought about all this. Okay, yeah. And the other thing about concepts is it makes things more predictable so that gives you more time to think about something else. Yes, but that's what's... Yeah. In your concrete, actual, bare attention exercise, can you stay, let's stay with that experience because otherwise it will become an academic discussion. During the week, you know, has anything... Has it been useful? If it hasn't, then that's fine too, but has, has it been useful for you? bird washing itself in a little by the hose. And uh, it was all very nice. And, you know, I got into the bird, <laughs> yeah. you know, as it ducked and, you know, threw water over itself and eventually flew off. Right. Um, I don't have anything more to say about okay. it. Like okay. But, okay. But I'm, I, your body language, what I feel is, big deal. Yeah, it was nice. It was okay. <laughs> Right. Okay. Uh, in and of itself, any of these small things, the fern, the bird, feeling the temperature of the waters we're washing the dishes or the taste, they're not, they're not much consequence. But is as we look at our whole life, it's made up of these details. And as, we, and it, and, and as it stops not just being a, a specialized exercise done at IMS, but more and more becomes just the level at which we live, or as much as we can, and particularly as it starts to affect ourselves and our relationships, then every time we make direct contact, that's what we're developing. We're becoming more alive. At least potentially. Yeah, Sarah? Um, it seems to me that bare attention involves some kind of participation. I had a marvelous experience with an orange the other morning at breakfast, <laughs> in which I took the orange back to the table to 
cut it uh, and eat it and put the knife very slowly into the rind. And suddenly there was a little geyser of moisture, not from the fruit itself, but simply from the rind, where there are little sacs that uh, contain I don't know what, that has a fragrance. And uh, in the sunlight it just shone up. And one cut after another, and there were little volcanoes of uh, fragrant moisture all over the orange. Uh, it, it was just, the orange was alive in a new way. And there were, were no thoughts whatsoever in this case. It was just a, a marvelous, playful experience. I understand, yeah. Is it possible to have a direct perception of a perception in, that, in this case? And that'd be bare attention. You'd have to tell me what you mean by well, that. I, last night, <coughs> um, I woke up and uh, I realized uh, instantaneously that I just dreamed. And the perception that I had just dreamed made me very excited because um, it was that fast. And um, it was just fresh. Was just In the dream. Uh, I awoke out of the dream. Mm-hmm. Did you see the dream? Is that your question? No, keep going. Go ahead. Uh, it was as if I was awake to the dream in a, in a way that wasn't just, well, you know, you get up at 4 o'clock. Oh, yeah, I, I dreamed last night. It was, it was so direct that <coughs> this, the details are not important, but the ramifications of it carried me through the rest of the night. How so? Well, at that moment, my perception was that I'd just been tyrannized by my mind in a particular way. That's what the dream was. And it got me really excited. I mean, it was like a total excitement to, uh, to, be, to participate in the next phase of the night. And uh, I did. <laughs> yeah, it was at the next phase of the night, at least what I brought to the next phase of the night was something so fresh that the next dream mm-hmm. I was awake for. And then the gong rang at mm-hmm. one o'clock. It was a totally different was it was a dream where <coughs> I was awake enough to not be tyrannized. Was the dream extremely vivid? Extraordinary. Yeah. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't like yes. Synonymous dream. It was like uh, it was like it was being awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had experiences that are similar to it. I only have them on retreats for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe others of you have had them in other situations. I haven't. Anyway, my question is is that that moment of awakening was so intense, Mm -hmm. so alive, that that's why I asked you, is is that, that was a, that was like a perception of a perception, and that's the, maybe those are the wrong words. To me, direct perception would be enough. It just is a really, a really intense. It's a direct experience of that. I'm particularly interested in using the bare attention exercises. If any of you have had any experience with that, has been of any relevance. Has that been with you? That wasn't what you were going to talk about. Mitch is bringing up my dream too. I uh, conked out this afternoon, you know, walking through the fifth, and uh, and I felt that I was tyrannized too because I dreamed something that uh, when I woke up, uh, I woke up angry because of what was going on. 
and then suddenly I it flashed on me that uh, this is your ego doing this to you. It's just another ego trick that goes on during meditations, it goes on whenever your mind is thinking. It's putting you through these tricks. So this time you slept into it and got a little stronger. So when I look up out of this and I realize, ah, I got I, I got just look past these things. It's just another ego trick. And I walked out of my room, I felt in a sort of a dream-like state, my body uh, almost was floating around. And when I was walking down the path and up to the door, my perception with my eyes was just like when you watch TV and they take a camera that is being held by a man and it bounces around. <laughs> and the way I was seeing things was I was standing still and everything else was bouncing around as I was walking up and down walking. And turning and looking, it was like as if the room was turning and I was standing straight. That's the way it was to my eyes. And uh, then I snapped out of that perception. And in the spare attention period, I also had these shifts of perception with inanimate objects too. My book on crashing the road, and uh, suddenly I'm, I'm miles high and I'm looking down on the earth and I'm seeing canyons and rivers. When you're speaking right now, who are you speaking to? Right in this moment. Because I'm feeling you drift off. I'm feeling you losing us. You're not, or is there people back there, over here? I'm way over here. I'm feeling you're not in contact with me at all. I'm just complicating things a little, that's all. (laughs) Yeah. This is independent of what you're trying to communicate. What I'm trying to suggest is we're here now and you're communicating about something that happened in the past, which is fine, that's what we're doing. But try to maintain the attention of us being here. Do you sense what I'm getting at? I know it was rude and I interrupted you, but it's for purposes of presence, of us developing presence. All too often we get caught in our presentation. We lose track of who's there or what what their needs are, etc. And so there's a certain... Our correct situation now is that we're in a group together, communicating. And so the awareness has to include that. Do you, do you know what I'm driving at? Yes. Good. Okay. I apologize for the rudeness. Did you have in your subject... Are, are you finished? So my only point in all that I think we're going on was I experienced many shifts in perception from an everyday reality to some... Uh, some other reality, it's maybe it's imagination, maybe it's creative, I don't know what it is. There's a shift. Sure. Something to say about that way of seeing. Um, Little louder, please. I, um, that way that you describe the seeing is really, I've done that kind of uh, looking, it's really looking. Uh, Working with my eyes to improve my vision, and uh, it is a way of seeing where you let go of the concept of how you're seeing. And it's an exercise. So, um, I don't know if it's a dream state. You really were seeing without preconception because if you look without preconception, if you just say turn your head and really look, um, you'll start to see things move as if you were a movie camera. And you're seeing without the concepts of how we, we see. You're looking straight ahead in your eyes and not moving. Just, just look and pretty soon you'll see that, that as you go this way, this stuff moves here. And then as you turn your head, it moves this way. It's just a different way of seeing. Instead of seeing everything stationary, things start to move. Mm-hmm. It's like everything moves. You can, you can ride along in the car. You can start to see that things in front move this way, things in front move that way, and it keeps going on with planes and planes of, of movement. Things pass and like that. Ken, now the experiment that I suggested at the outset, and maybe it's too ambitious, but I think we should give it a try, is that while you're talking about this, you happen to be here with us, and so that, that same frame of reference Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.